this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. We are once again joined by my good friend, Samantha. Hello. Hello, Samantha, for this episode in our mini-series around trauma and sexual assault. Um, we're going to be looking at why survivors of sexual assault don't come forward, and then if they do, what happens? Over the course of these next several episodes, we're going to go step-by-step step through what coming forward entails. Reporting, rape kits, court dates, all of that stuff. Although we do want to recognize at the front, coming forward doesn't have to be the the rape kit or Twitter or going to court type things. It can be and often is just as valuable to just tell someone that you trust. Right. So triggers, um, trigger warnings for this episode are sexual assaults and abuse and trauma. We don't want to traumatize y'all more or make you fearful to continue listening. But in the next few episodes, we'll be talking to people who are willing to relay some of the more intense aftermaths of going through a trauma, including actual hospital visits and continued trauma due to having to repeat details of the events. Um, What we're hoping to do is shed light on why this is so much harder than most people assume. And honestly, I'm tired of having to prove to those who have never been victimized like this, assuming it isn't a big deal, or the whole myth of that victims are trying to get attention or wanting money. So we're going to break it down a bit. Yes. So let's start with why people don't come forward. Because as you probably already know, sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes Around 80% go unreported is the estimate. And all the time you hear, um, why didn't she come forward? Or why did she wait so long to come forward? And I suspect, hope, (laughs) that this episode will answer those questions. According to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they receive 12,000 complaints about sex-based harassment annually. They estimate that up to three out of four people who have experienced sexual harassment never come forward. The co-chairman of a commission task force said that instead of reporting, women, quote, avoid the harasser, deny or downplay the gravity of the situation, or attempt to ignore, forget, or endure the behavior. I just wanted to throw this in here because I found it so disturbing, but on college campuses, the first six weeks are known as the red zone. 50% of annual rapes on college campuses occur within that time frame. Wow. Yeah. The cost of lost productivity or of jobs or of education from things like PTSD that survivors experience in the aftermath of a sexual assault directly impacts the American economy at large. When people do report, in 2016, the CDC estimates that the economic cost of sexual harassment and assault came out to be around 100000 to 200000 per victim or a total of $263 billion in the United States. And that's probably lowballing mm-hmm. it. The priest scandal, the priest abuse scandal with the Catholic Church has cost them $3 billion in settlements for more specific example. Yeah, and they're still going, I think. Oh, yeah. There's so many more. So overall health, medical costs for women who has experienced sexual or child abuse is 16% higher than a woman who has not been through this experience. Yeah, so those are like financial costs. Um, and we're going to get into more detail of a lot of other financial costs later. But for now, let's let's talk about why people don't come forward, because there are so many reasons. 
One of the biggest ones is shame and self-blame. So many survivors report shame as one of the primary reasons they waited so long to come forward, feeling that they were to blame, that they sent the wrong signals. And can you blame us when the reaction societally is so often victim-blaming in nature? Sexual assault is dehumanizing. When you are ashamed of something, you're not rushing to tell people about it. It makes you want to hide. It makes your skin crawl. I remember at one particular New Year's Eve party after I was triggered, crying into a toilet, puking while my friends tried to calm me down and saying over and over again, I can't feel this way anymore to be less than human. That was my first New Year's Eve party I cleared out. Yeah. Um, And there's this need to figure out why this event, this horrible traumatic event happened to you. Um, That's how your brain works. So you'll never do that thing again. You want to believe you have control of your own body. That means you might start thinking of yourself as bad or that something is wrong with you. I can say from personal experience, I felt unlovable and that I was tricking people into liking me or that I had this huge, obvious scar on my face, but everyone was being kind and allowing me to pretend it didn't exist. But one day, they would realize it. They would see me for what I truly was, which I thought was something not worth their time. And shame often leads to isolation because you don't want to inflict your presence on others. Or in some societies, isolation is forced upon you. For a long time, I struggled with this, I don't want to bother anybody mentality. Um, Like, they need to reach out to me. Right. And overall, you do feel like you are uh, an inconvenience. Yeah. And that is bothersome, especially because you're like, this is my own problem. I have to deal with this. I did this. That whole mentality. But, you know, um, for me, having this happen to me or being able to not being okay or being able to let go made me feel like I was being weak which is a lie. Being strong doesn't mean we aren't allowed to feel emotions and vulnerability. It's not something to be ashamed of, but I know that constantly is in the back of my head because I played to be this, not just play to be, but I hope to be this strong, independent woman who um, takes care of herself and defends herself, all of those things. But then you have this nagging feeling in the back of your head because you've been victimized or traumatized several times that you are lying and that you're weak and you allow things to happen, as you talked about earlier. Um, And in a book written as a guide to surviving sexual assault violence, it stated 90% of rape trauma recovery is undoing a victim's tendency to self-blame, which is a giant wall individual victims have to scale before they can even start the healing process. And I think that's obvious, a big question. A lot of us don't want to talk about it, and that's the whole part is, when you come forward, and we're, again, saying forward, talking to someone, whether it's to get help for yourself or just to be recognized that you had gone through something, it's hard to get there because to say it out loud means that something happened to you and you have to acknowledge it and it hurts all over again. Yeah, yeah. You have to admit it to yourself. So we have a lot more reasons why why people don't come forward. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So another big reason people don't come forward, we've kind of touched on a little bit, is denial and minimization. Because you don't want to believe that you've been abused. That is a hard truth to accept. You you might also compare yourself to other people you know that, quote, had it worse and feel like you don't have the right to call what happened to you 
sexual assault compared to what others went through. You might make excuses for your abuser who might be generally well-liked and respected or a part of your friend group or family. You know what? We could probably break this down just growing up female, growing up to be a lady, growing up to be a caretaker, that we are taught that it's our responsibility as women to make everybody else feel okay. And that includes those who hurt us. And it's a whole mindset that we're trying to, everybody, I think, is starting to realize, not starting to, but have been realizing, and it needs to be broken down. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this is something that does get lost a lot of the time, that um, someone you know is the perpetrator most most of the time. That's, right. that's the case. And speaking from experience, you or the people around you might go out of your way to reconceptualize what happened as anything but sexual assault, even if that's absolutely what it is, because it's someone you know. <laughs> right. And again, that you may like or you used to respect. I right. remember several of the biggest controversies happened because this was a well-respected, let's say, teacher who everybody loved and adored or a preacher that everybody loved or adored. They have this whole reputation as being a good person, but they don't see the underlying issues, that that is the trust that they build and could actually be part of the reason how or part of how they can groom others. But yeah. it's so hard. You don't want to, especially if you look up to this person. Yeah, or especially... Like if it is a part of your friend group or right. your family or something like that, it's really difficult. And a while back, we interviewed Samantha. Not me. Different Samantha. Not um, me. Two Samanthas, one episode, who worked for three years as a prosecutor, and she spoke to this. Growing up as females, we're always taught about the boogeyman and be careful when you're walking at night or out jogging. And not that you shouldn't be safe and aware of your surroundings, but Really, those situations that you hear about or are sensationalized through movies um, are very, very rare, typically. Not that they don't happen, and they do receive a lot of media attention when they do. But most of the sex crimes that occur are acquaintances or the date rape situations. Um, and I think the more aware people are of that, um, the easier it, it eventually is for victims because. As adults, we're all looking for that boogeyman in the woods that's dragging you off type scenario. You'll be hearing more from Samantha. Not me. This other Samantha and this Samantha, too. This is going to get confusing really quickly uh, in the future. We also spoke to Justin Boardman, who spent seven years as a detective in the Special Victims Unit in Utah. He now focuses on trauma-informed training around the country and around the world. Um, He... Retired early, he told us, from his job so he could specifically do this type of training and teach others about what he's doing and talking about trauma-informed interviewing. And we love him, just to say that. My name is Justin Portman, and I am a retired police detective from the city of West Valley City in Utah, which is the active suburb of Salt Lake City. I spent seven years in the Special Victims Unit. During that time in the Special Victims Unit, I was assigned just about 1,200 cases. So if you do the math, that's a lot of cases to burn through, if you will. So those are adult rapes, uh, mostly child sexual assault, child abuse, elder abuse, that sort of thing. So it's a pretty heavy, emotional type of caseload, if you will. So in and of itself, the two words, trauma-informed, is 
using his own get-outs. There are numerous amounts of definitions to what trauma-informed means. But I kind of take the general version of everything, which means you are informed about what trauma is and how it presents itself, and you're informed about it. So that's kind of where I go. Most of my stuff is changing the places within the justice system that can be trauma-informed. And you will be hearing more from Justin in future episodes as well. So according to the president of RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, one of the first questions people ask when they call the hotline is, was I raped? And I can tell you through personal experience, I have heard this so many times from friends and honestly from some of you listeners. Yeah. So, yeah, I actually had two separate conversations with two very strong, independent women who we had to talk out the fact that they had been raped. But before then, they were, they didn't acknowledge that it was um, and didn't think to see how it was a forced experience. And I've had many moments at looking at different incidents where you people realize, oh, my gosh, this was a man who was being predatory or being dominant, you know, and, and forcing himself on me and or not listening when I said no. Right. A meta-analysis of 28 studies looking into women and girls who had experienced non-consensual sex found 60% did not acknowledge that they had been raped. Hmm. Another study found that 28% of men that had been raped as adults did not identify it as rape. And one reason is this flawed narrative of, quote, real rape, which is a male stranger with a weapon assaulting a woman. Most rapes do not fit that script. A 2016 study out of the UK looking into the 400 cases reported over a two-year period, not one of those cases fit this idea of real rape. So someone who has experienced an assault that's outside of that, which is most assaults, might think, well, it wasn't that. Yeah, and um, as you heard Samantha talk about the boogeyman and many of our uh, judicial system, those who are in the jury, our peers, they also have that mentality like, okay, so they didn't jump out of the bushes and grab me and kidnap me or whatever. And that is part of the problem is this whole mindset that if you know them and if it wasn't, didn't cause bruising or didn't cause some kind of scarring, physical scarring on you, then it wasn't really rape because what did you say? How did the conversation go? Yeah, and our laws are a big part of perpetrating this problem. Like like we mentioned in some states and some countries, women can't legally rape someone, for instance, which we know is not true. Um, and a lack of sex ed around consent contributes to this problem as well. And just in speaking with others who have experienced similar events, the number of times an individual will say it was not that bad in order to compare the ordeal, whether to deny it or because they feel like they didn't suffer enough in comparison to other victims, which actually we'll have an example of later on as well. Yeah, and kind of going off of that, um, another reason People might might not come forward is um, if drugged, inebriated, disassociated, resulting in vague memories, ones that you might doubt, or maybe you didn't fight back or you froze. An emergency rape clinic in Stockholm, Sweden, found in 2017, 70% of women reported experience tonic immobility during their assault. And this is a natural response to protect yourself from further or worse harm, but it goes to back to what you were saying, Samantha, of like, you didn't fight back if you can't remember these things then you know that might not hold up in court. It'd be very difficult. Um, another big reason is fear of losing your job, of not being believed, of losing friends, fear of becoming 
the one that came forward and missing out on opportunities and promotions. Here's Justin again. I would come in on Monday morning. I would look in my box and maybe there'd be a sexual assault exam report in there. And I would look through it. And what we do is we would call up our victim and we would say, hey, I just read through your report. I'm sorry this happened to you. And I see that you don't have, you're not remembering a lot. There's bits and pieces here and there. There's alcohol involved, which happens a lot. Actually, alcohol is a tool that can be used to facilitate sexual assault. And I go, you know, there's witnesses here. Could you give me a list of all the people that were there? The officers didn't do that. Um, well, there I'm seeing they got one or two, but there was 20 people there I need to talk to. And can you give me that information by maybe Thursday? Unless you don't want to keep going forward. Well, I was planting all this doubt in their brains, and I didn't know that. And I was putting these huge tasks on somebody who had just been raped for hell's sake. So I tell them, you know, if I don't hear from you by this date, I'm going to close out your case. But it can be reopened if you feel like you want to come forward later. Well, you know, Monday morning would come around. The next Monday, I hadn't heard from them. So I closed out their case, refused to cooperate, case closed. And that was it. Career trajectory altering. That's how economist Joni Hirsch described coming forward. Through her research at Vanderbilt University, she found the existence of something called danger pay. This is pay for performing something hazardous or physically demanding. And Hirsch examined the risk of sexual harassment by industry, age group, sex, and reached the conclusion that women are six times more likely than men to experience sexual harassment while working. She also found that women in occupations with lower risk of sexual harassment are paid less and that danger pay made up the difference for jobs with higher risk of sexual harassment. And there is disagreement about the that interpretation, but interesting nonetheless. Very. If you come forward, unfortunately, you might be known as the person that came forward on a micro-macro scale. And this might keep you from getting jobs like this has been documented because you were seen as a complainer. And as I've mentioned, I've never come forward with what happened to me, like officially. But I have spoken out about smaller things. And I've mentioned before I do acting outside of this. And I have definitely lost jobs because I came forward. Uh, More in the sense of pushing away a producer that was kissing me without consent. Um, and finding out my job was gone the very next day, um, or something like that. And Me Too got popularized by white actresses coming forward with that hashtag, women's whose careers were permanently changed or ended. And a lot of industries don't even have a structure in place for you to report as a part of this problem. Um, I had no one I could have gone to with this. And even if there was someone, it The system doesn't always protect who it is supposed to protect. Right. And I know we have that same complaint when it comes to racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is difficult to report because you never know who's going to listen and who's going to take things seriously um, and who's actually going to care enough. Another reason people might not come forward is low self-esteem, especially for young girls or those that identify as women. Seeing how women are treated in our pop culture, in porn culture, and just in general, in our lives, um, we see that, and we might think, I guess that's okay. Minimization of women's pain, the sacrifice of their well-being for men's pleasure. I could talk about that all the time. Right. And honestly, as a social worker, one of the things that we studied and watched was The Lost Children of Brockdale. I don't know if y'all have seen this, but this is a documentary based in a small town in Georgia, which 
this outbreak of syphilis happened, and it was a brand new type of syphilis, and they went and through the whole thing trying to find, you know, patient A, patient one. Patient zero. Patient zero. <laughs> I got this. Patient zero. And it turned out this huge culture of sexually active kids who are doing parties, and the ages ranged from like 11 to 18. And I remember watching it, and there were several 12-year-old girls talking about losing their virginity and being proud of that. But then when they were asked, did you enjoy it? It got very somber, and the girls were like, no, it hurt. I cried. All these all these things that were so heartbreaking. But then they were able to scoot that aside and be like, but man, this is what I got for that, and he's popular, and he's so cute. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. This is probably one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen because this is what they think sex is. And they think that sex is just something to become popular with and it's being yeah. used against them. And they don't acknowledge the pain in that. They just literally just slid by it. Mm-hmm. And it's just so heartbreaking that many, many people and many of the younger generations, and when I say younger, I'm talking about 16, 18 and younger, I hope, um, don't understand about pleasure versus just getting it done. Yeah. And that's a whole other conversation that we should have a talk about. We should. We should. Um, Another part of this conversation is hopelessness or helplessness. If you've seen others come forward and not be believed, then you might think, well, why should I put myself through that? Or in a long-term abusive situation, you might experience what's called learned helplessness. If you have a history of abuse, that will impact your likelihood of coming forward as well. Um, there's generational abuse or revictimization, continued abuse, observing and normalizing violent and or aggressive behaviors in some war-torn areas or disaster zones or a place where order has broken down. There's something called rape normalization that can happen where women accept it as a part of life. Right. Um, and so here we want to add specific statistics at why the LGBTQI community do not come forward, although obviously many of the reasons are similar. But within the population, we know that the LGBTQI have higher rates of poverty and stigma and marginalization, which actually puts them at greater risk for sexual assault. And some of the statistics from the CDC's National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner compared to the 35% of the heterosexual women. 46% of the bisexual women have been raped compared to the 17% of the heterosexual women and 13% of lesbians. Then 22% of the bisexual women have been raped by an intimate partner compared to the 9% of the heterosexual women. And according to the 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey, about 47% of the respondents experienced sexual assault, and in the same survey, 54% have experienced intimate partner violence. It's also important to note people of color have a higher rate of experiencing assault and violence than those who are not. So why does this population not report? Due to the mere discrimination by authorities and even people close to them, they are more likely to not seek help as it becomes just as traumatic to try to report the assaults. For some, they've already been denied services or help, which again discourages them to report or seek out help. With that, many within the populations believe they will not be believed, which is often reinforced by law enforcement and others in authority, which classify the population as secondary. And some do not come out because they fear being outed. It's not surprising to know that the likelihood of anyone from this community to report an assault is less likely than that of the heterosexual community, but oftentimes are not included within the narrative. 
which was a big issue within the Me Too hashtag, which for many in the community, they felt that it left out their voices as it is geared more toward male-female language versus the non-gendered conversation. So there are so many reasons why people don't report. Um, and we touched on some of the big ones, but there's there's just a lot. Right. Um, and this is why we see something like the hashtag why I didn't come forward go viral. Um, so what happens if you do come forward? We'll get into some of that after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So if you do come forward, as in kind of more publicly than just sharing your story with someone in your inner circle that you trust, then one thing that you can expect is that you and your loved ones might be uh, dragged through the court of public opinion. People are going to dig into your past and the past of everyone around you. This is especially true if, like, you go to court or it's a more famous case. Right. Yeah. Um, Think about the families of prominent cases like Christine Blasey Ford. The people attacking you on social media, calling you names, re-traumatizing you, of the people delegitimizing your experience, which in turn might influence other women not to come forward, like we said. Um, You might be called out by the president of the United States demanding to know why you didn't come forward earlier, which is what happened to Dr. Ford. Trump tweeted that if it was as bad as she says, charges would have been immediately filed with local law enforcement authorities for either her or her loving parents. I ask that she bring those filings forward so that we can learn date, time, and place. I'm physically nauseous from that statement. But let's take a closer look because I have heard that on many occasions. And she stated she felt it was her duty as an American citizen to relive these traumas and pain to protect the citizens of our country. And we're going to talk in an episode about survivors. And honestly, here is a prime example of what people do as survivors. Right. Um, Another thing that you might hear if you come forward more publicly Uh, This question, why is she still friendly with her abuser? Okay, let's go ahead and put this statistic back up. According to the Department of Justice, nearly 6 out of 10 victims of assault knew their assailant, and 8 out of 10 rape victims knew their attacker. So for me, who was victimized by people who I knew and trusted, but was fearful that people wouldn't believe me, I kept pretending like everything was okay. Because if I didn't, I would make others feel uncomfortable, or maybe even call the liar. Yeah. There's also, like, that element of protection. That was a big one for me, like, protecting other people from what I was going through. Uh, and, yeah, strangers aren't usually the danger, folks. Right. As, in fact, I, my last therapy session with Dr. Coleman, we're going to leave that name there, um, she and I talked about the fact that I still haven't told my parents some things because I felt that it would be vindictive and it would not be healing. And that's partially in the back of my mind thinking I'm also trying to protect myself from damaging my relationship with my family. Yeah. Um, Another thing that survivors coming forward, a question they might get, um, or an accusation, I guess, is she doesn't act like a victim. Her memory doesn't add up. Her story doesn't add up. She didn't fight back. Uh, And we did talk about a lot of 
of this stuff in our episode on trauma. Oh, wait. I didn't realize there was only one type of behavior for victims. Please, someone tell me what that is. For me, being a victim meant I was a survivor, and to hell with those who would try to have power over me. Yeah. Yeah. You tell them, Samantha. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm going to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. That was my attitude. Yeah. Um, Something else? Um, Is she a slut, a flirt, a tease? In court cases, literally look at this sexy Instagram photo has come up. Oh, my goodness. So many of those, any of the times they flirt with anyone, Mm -hmm. automatic. You're a slut. Right. So, therefore, how could you not have wanted Of course you wanted to have sex with the random stranger and or the guy that you weren't interested in before but wanted to be friends with. Right. Yeah. Um, the statute of limitations might be another thing that you, you run into, um, <laughs> which is very complicated and varies state by state. Right. Um, and we wanted to talk about why else wouldn't we want to come forward? Lenient sentencing. Yeah. Uh, and I just wanted to give a couple of examples of the most frustrating cases as of recent, and maybe not so recent, but Brock Turner. Obviously, I think people know who that is raping an unconscious woman behind a dumpster and being caught by in the act by someone only cost six months of his life because it would cause a severe impact on his life, yeah. and he's already suffered enough. Yeah. I am—we—there mm, are so many words <laughs> that I can't say right now. Right. And it is—it was infuriating and such a blowback. The letter that the victim wrote, the survivor wrote, was— heartbreaking. Yeah. And it seemed to go nowhere except for other victims to hear her words and feel strengthened that. Yeah. There was another case in which a late 40-something teacher groomed and had sex with a 14-year-old student who later took her own life. And at the hearing, the judge actually stated that the teen acted older than her chronological age and that the child was as much in control of the situation as the perpetrator. The original sentence it was for 15 years, but he only actually served 30 days. Ooh. Yeah. This is an injustice. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, it is. A 14-year-old being blamed for a 40-year-old's need to have sex with a minor, that's absurd. This is one of those examples where we talk about the Lolita effect. Yeah. In which they are sexualized and being told because she acts older than she is, she can consent. Yeah. Which is not true. No. In any way, shape, or form. And for this to happen Mm -hmm. and to have no real justice, I don't think this is justice. No. It's heartbreaking, and I just have to take a deep breath. And another example would include the case in Alaska, which involved a man— um, and you can look at this case up, but I don't want to highlight the man specifically, but more so on the trial and the result. This man kidnapped, choked, and masturbated on a woman. She was able to get the perp's license plate after he left, and this man was sentenced to two years of prison with credit for time served on house arrest. The quote given by the judge is he was going to give him a one pass, which is great. Yeah. Everybody needs a pass, right? I have so many reactions to this, so many reactions. But let's also layer that with the fact that under Alaskan law, masturbating on someone against their will is not considered a sex crime. Wow. I want to rant (laughs) and be so loud about how absurd this obvious sexual gratification of a man against the will of a woman is 
seen as a learning lesson for a quote-unquote family man who has apparently learned his lesson after getting caught and possibly being incarcerated. That's great. Yeah. It, and it seems forcible. It seems forcibly taking a woman to an unknown location and dragging her out against her will to be violated is not kidnapping in Alaska because she got in the car with him. Oh, even though that's not where she wanted to go. Right. And according to the actual police report, the victim was so traumatized she could barely speak. A woman was almost murdered for the mere pleasure of a man who did not care about the humanity of another, and the court system failed by minimizing the trauma, the violation, and the overall ability for this woman to live a normal-ish life and essentially protect the rights of a perpetrator instead of the woman who had no choice in the matter except to trust someone to be a decent human to get home. Yeah, yeah, that's all pretty awful. Um, And we have even more awful cases. So many cases of why. Yeah, um, so if we look at the case of Roy Moore, so Lee Korfman, who was the first to come out with accusations against Roy Moore, said it probably, quote, cost her more to come forward when people assailed her with claims that she was getting paid to sully his name. (laughs) And then there's also Monica Lewinsky. And for the younger listeners who may not know Miss Lewinsky, she was at the center of the scandal involving herself as a young intern and the current president of the United States, President Bill Clinton. To summarize, they had an affair, and many of the details of the affair came out, which led to the impeachment or, yeah, the impeachment trial to, for President Clinton. Now, I don't want to linger too much about the actual events, but of the aftermath. Instead of being an issue of misconduct by the leader of the country, it became a source to demean and humiliate the actual intern, Ms. Lewinsky. So much so that even Ms. Beyonce Knowles, not too long ago, referenced her as a verb in her song, which Ms. Lewinsky corrected by stating it should actually be called Bill Clinton. <laughs> mm-hmm. I suppose You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I know Bill what Clinton, you're saying. Which I agree with. Because that's biology, you know? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And in the documentary series, The Clinton Affair, uh, Ms. Lewinsky talked about her feeling suicidal and having no real control in the relationship as he was one of the most powerful men in the world. And she finally addressed that she does feel like people have moved on and has rightly so renamed the event from the Lewinsky scandal to The Clinton Affair, which it should have been to begin with. Yeah. While we're talking about this, I did want to look at some of the limits that occur with reporting sex crimes. A majority of the country has a statute of limitations in filing criminal charges. And when we talk about statute of limitations, we are talking about the window of time that a state or a victim has to charge the perpetrator. With the focus on DNA evidence, many of the states in the last years have allowed to to either extend or pause the statute of limitations when DNA evidence is found in a case. So people were able to revisit old cases because new DNA evidence were found, so they can either restart the statute of limitations or just pause it altogether. Mm-hmm. So that's that's good to know. And Georgia, Florida, and Hawaii are a few of the states that allowed that change. Now, there's still several states who have not hopped on board with that change yet, such as Alabama and Arkansas. There's also a few states who have stepped up even further to eliminate statutes of felony level of sex crimes, including Kentucky, Maryland, North Carolina, and Virginia. Now, these are just few examples, and it's fairly fascinating to research. If you're curious to learn more uh, about your state, 
Rain, R-A-I-N-N, as we mentioned earlier, has listed limitations in regards to sex crimes and offenses state by state. There's also an option outside of a statute of limitations for criminal prosecutions, which we'll talk about a little more later, but it's civil suits and why this option is important for some recovery. Yes. Here is Justin again. Since you were talking to your listeners or more on the jury pool, the way neurobiology happens and way it presents to people is counterintuitive to what we were raised to think and see. And the first person that somebody discloses sexual assault to is so important to the system and to their healing, the victim's healing. And, you know, you hear the term starting by believing, that's good, things like that. But really, just show some empathy and don't question about what happened. Our suspects, if you will, are can be predators. And they work very hard and they're very good at what they do. And people think that the victims are lying. They were set up. They were groomed for the most part. And rape is not something that happens in back alleyways often. Um, It's mostly acquaintance rapes. So just to drive that point in one more time. (laughs) And this about brings us to the end of, of this episode. But... Um, our next episode will be a little different because, like we've we've mentioned, we spoke with a survivor uh, about her story, and we also spoke with someone who has put a lot of research into rape kits. Um, and we will also be hearing from Justin, uh, this former detective of a special victims unit, and also from Samantha, the lawyer, and also from Samantha, you. Yay, me! <laughs> yes, yes. The other one bumbling through the words. <laughs> Um, and to end with our, our self-care bit of the episode, um, my d fact, uh, what I'm calling the Annie, are you okay section. Um, <laughs> so once, we, we this was pretty early when we were playing and I was still very new to things. And our dungeon master, who is somebody who works in this office, um, we always made the foolish decision. Whatever it was, the most foolish, dangerous thing, that's what we did. And... One time we encountered this portal that we knew had monsters in it. And instead of like proceeding carefully, we attacked the portal with all of this all of this magic and the dungeon master Tyler he pauses, he looks down, and he says, "Give me a minute." <laughs> Because <laughs> he clearly wasn't expecting us to make such a foolish decision. And we he had to get the, there's like all of these books associated with Dungeons and Dragons. One of them is called the Monster Manual. That's where all the monsters are. And he, he picks it up and he's like, oh, heavy sigh. <laughs> and we had to fight not one, not two, not three, but four basilisk. And turn you to stone. Oh. Barely made it out alive. And did that stop us making another foolish decision almost immediately after and jumping into the portal? No. You know, Annie, I got those videos of the D&D playing. <laughs> yes, she's got videos. If she shares some with me, I'm really excited to watch them. I decided I got to wait for a second because I, I want to be able to be in the moment mm-hmm. to see you in your best. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I'm assuming. Sure. At your happiest? Oh, yeah, yeah, at my prime. At your prime. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. 
Um, for me, you know, we talk about Peaches a lot because she is my dumb dog. Actually, she's very smart. That is kind of a jerk. Yeah. And I adore her for mm-hmm. that very, very, very much reason. But I will say she's been really great to watch movies with. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I have to do, uh, come home if I've had a really rough day, is just try to shut down my brain. And the way I do it is watch stupid things. Mm-hmm. as many stupid things as I can. And typically, it will range from Harry Potter. Oh, that's a good one for me, yep. too. Yep. It will also do um, Anna Green Gables. Okay. The old school one. Uh-huh. The old school one. Yeah. Is it BBC? No, it's the PBS one, I think. Um, I don't know which one it is. Uh, then I'll also do some silly movies like Princess Bride. Mm. I adore that movie. Uh-huh. Um, and I usually make Peaches sit in my lap almost uh-huh. <laughs> while I'm watching these movies. And I turn my brain off, and hopefully I fall asleep. That is one of the best ways I can do things. Just watch nothing. <laughs> and by nothing, you mean something All the you've things. seen so many times that yes. your brain is just like, All Yes, right. I actually took a Harry Potter quiz the other day, and I, I killed it. I once did Harry Potter trivia and did not miss a single question, and they were like, okay, um, cool. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So I'm like, don't play with me. Yeah. Don't play. I'm also the you. same one that will be like, um, that's not the same in the book. Yes. That's not the same as the book. I like the better in the book version. Yeah. I'm that person. We all love that person. <laughs> I am that person. <laughs> yes. So that is the end, the end of this episode. If you'd like to email us, you can... Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. If you need any resources or anything like that, if you have any experiences you'd like to share related to this series, we would love to hear from you. You can also find us on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You and on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. (laughs) 